Facebook, all ablaze. Is it Yanni or is it Laurel? Some of you know what I'm talking about. There is this clip of somebody saying something. Some people hear Yanni. Some people hear Laurel. By the way, it's Yanni, just so we're clear. And it's, it's a big deal. The New York Times even wrote a story about it. That's how big it was. But anyways, um, your perception of things, how you view things, how you see them, is important. And our passage this morning is going to tell us how to view Jesus as we read. So listen, as we read, for what this passage shows us about Jesus. Again, the text is Mark 9, 1 through 13. This is the Word of God. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His clothes became radiant white, radiant intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? And be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. As is written of him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to hear your word. Not to hear the preacher's word, but to hear you speak. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you and your son Jesus this morning. And we pray, Lord, speak now for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we do pray. Amen. Now, many of you are familiar with Dr. Bonner here. He's a member here at Hickson Press. I'm not even sure if he's here this morning, but he takes trips to Uganda. Uh, when he, He's been several times. Brooke and I have seen him there. We visited. And as you know, he is an eye doctor. And when he goes, he sets up clinics. And there are long lines of people waiting 
to have their eyes checked. Something's wrong. They can't see right, or there's a pain in their eyes. Their vision is, is distorted. And they're there to get their eyes fixed. Well, this passage will help us fix our eyes. It'll help correct our vision of Jesus. It'll help us to see Jesus clearly. Now, who, what did the disciples see in Jesus? What did they, how did they view Jesus? Well, Peter, if you look back in the context of Mark 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 32 and 33, you'll see that Peter thought the Messiah, he, first of all, he thought Jesus was the Messiah, so we'll give him points there. But he didn't see what the Messiah's role should be. See, Peter and the disciples and many Jews thought the Messiah was there to free Israel from Rome, from its oppressors, and set up a kingdom right there in Israel. Just like the good old days and David and Solomon, right? And so when Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer in Mark 8, you know what Peter does? Peter takes Jesus aside. Okay, bonus points for not doing this in front of everybody. But Peter takes Jesus aside, and the text says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I didn't make that word up. It's right there. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? Right? Jesus! Now, come on, man. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Peter took him aside and rebuked Jesus and said, no, 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 no. You're not going to die because a dead king doesn't rule, right? That's their thinking. If you're dead, we cannot be free of this oppression. Now, Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for your mind is on the things of man, not on the things of God. You see, Peter's vision of Jesus was different than what Jesus really was. Okay? Now imagine Peter is thinking Jesus should be king of Israel. And then imagine what happens in Mark 9. He takes him up on a mountain. He wants to show them who he really is. And he wants to show us who he really is. Because like Peter, we can misunderstand We cannot see Jesus for who He really is. Our mind can often be on the things of man and not on the things of God. We put our own assumptions and our own desires upon Jesus. But this passage helps correct our vision to help us to see Jesus Clearly, to see Jesus clearly. Now, what does this passage show us about Jesus? What do we see about Jesus? Well, Jesus takes his disciples up on the mountain to show them that Jesus is king. Okay? Jesus is king. Brooke and I, when we were in Uganda, this was 2013, so some five years ago, 
We were in a small town in Tororo in northwest Uganda. And we happened, I happened to see on the TV this, I think it was the 17th coronation ceremony of the king of Tororo. Uganda is one nation with many kingdoms. And many of these kingdoms have kings. And this particular kingdom on this particular day was having a coronation ceremony to celebrate their king. And do you know what he was wearing? He had, a, he had a, some sort of headgear on, right? He had a long robe. He was sitting in a very nice chair up on the stage. And who was there? The crowds were there. The people were there to, to see and witness this. The media was there to record the event, to document it. There were dignitaries there from many other kingdoms to honor this king of Tororo. And even President Museveni himself showed up to honor this king. Now that's exactly what we see in Mark 9. It is basically a, a ceremony to say that this person, this Jesus, is king. You see, he has different clothes. They are intensely white as no one could make them white. There are dignitaries there. Moses and Elijah show up to say this man is great. And who else to show up but the two men in the Old Testament who meet with God on a mountain. You also have the press there. That's Peter, James, and John. They're the witnesses. Okay, they, They're there to see this what this event there are the people there and even god himself shows up to say this is my beloved son listen to him you see jesus took them up on the mountain to show them that he was king not just of some small territory in the near east with very little arable land, a lot of desert, a lot of trouble. No, no, no. You see, Jesus is king of the whole world. The whole world. That's what He wanted to show them. That their vision of, of the King of Israel, of the Messiah, of the Christ, was too small. Their vision of what Jesus is is too small. It's not big enough. It's not big enough. You see, Jesus is King of everything. Far too often, we see Him as too small. Too small. But Jesus shows them that He is King of the whole world. And I'll ask you this morning, is He King of the whole world? Is He King over, uh, let's say, President Trump? Is He King over North Korea? Is He King over our church, over our neighborhood, over our city? And I'll tell you, here's the test. 
on what you believe, on how you see Jesus, how do you pray? How do you pray for these things? Do you see Him as in control? The Old Testament records that God is in fact control over the whole world. He is over all kingdoms of this world. We see that Israel was delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. That was no problem for God. Babylon, the great nation, some years later after Egypt, the Old Testament records that Babylon was his servant. You see, God is king over all the kingdoms. None of them escape his attention or his rule. And he is king of our world, of our sufferings, and our successes. Because he uses it all for his glory. But how do we see Jesus as king? How do we get this vision of him? Well, what does God say in verse 7? Listen to him. And so we need to study what Jesus has said as well as the rest of the word, the rest of God's word, to ponder and meditate upon it. It's interesting. I've been reading a book on the Psalms. And the, the author is making the point that when the psalmists are experiencing trouble and they and you can you they express it so poetically, but the anguish is real. Often, what do they do? They look back. They look back to what God had done for Israel at Egypt. What God had done for them at various other points in their history. How God had acted mightily, knowing that He is King and He will act mightily again. And yet, We have an advantage over the psalmist because we know one more event that they didn't. And that's Jesus Christ. God has acted mightily in Him. And so when we enter turmoil and strife, when our world is collapsing, we have to remember by looking to the Scriptures, to how God has acted, that Jesus is King. And when we read the Scriptures, what do we see? We see that Jesus is the Creator of the world. He sustains the world. He is the King of everywhere and every when. And so we must see this Jesus, this big and mighty King, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And so Jesus is king. But what else does Jesus show his disciples on that mountaintop? What else do they see? Well, Jesus wants them to see that he is the servant. Jesus is servant. As they come down the mountain, what does Jesus tell them? He tells them, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And the disciples are confused by this. They're scratching their heads. They're like, what does this rising from the dead mean? Because Jesus just told them the Son of Man is going to die. 
right? And rise again. And so then they ask him further. Um, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? This is an Old Testament prophecy from Malachi 4 that Elijah would come. This is the last chapter in the Old Testament. Okay? Elijah must come. He's like, they're right. He must. And what does he say about Elijah? He did come, and they did to him whatever they wanted. Right? So what is Jesus doing here? In, in another gospel, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come. John the Baptist is the Elijah that was to come? Yeah. So, he, that's what he's saying here. John the Baptist came, and what did they do to him? Whatever they wanted, Right? And so what Jesus is doing is using an, an example of something they know and have experienced to say this is, could be true of the Son of Man as well. Because again, they don't see this dying stuff doesn't make sense to them. There's a conundrum, you see, because the Jews want Rome out. So dying is out of the picture. But Jesus is a servant. He is here to serve their needs, not their wants. He is here to give them what they ultimately, not what they think they need. You see, because when Peter pulled Jesus aside, what is he saying? He's saying, get rid of our enemies. Get rid of Rome out of Israel. And Jesus is saying, Peter... Your problem is too small. The problem isn't just Rome, though it's a problem. That's not the biggest problem. What's the biggest problem? Jesus, by implicitly here and explicitly elsewhere in Scriptures, we see that Jesus is telling Peter, you are the problem, Peter. You are the enemy of God. And then we know that by reading Scripture, you and I are enemies of God. Or at least one time were. Gee, that is the enemy. Jesus must vanquish. But what, how does He vanquish this enemy? By saving this enemy. By redeeming this enemy. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You see, sin, death, Satan, those are the oppressors of God's people. Those are what Jesus came to deliver us from. You see, Peter is the enemy. He just doesn't know it. Uh, in the movie Les Miserables, okay, the movie, not the musical, by the way. I'm not a musical guy. I don't know why, but um, I love the Liam Neeson version. It's, it's awesome. Go see it if you haven't. Um, but anyways, the, the, my favorite scene in the movie is when Jean Valjean is released from prison. He has served his time, and he's out. And this priest brings him into his household and feeds him a meal. 
and gives him a place to sleep. And what does Jean Valjean do? This ex-con. He robs the priest. And as the priest wakes up to find him, stealing from him, Jean Valjean knocks him out or hits him on the head and flees with many goods from the home. Well, the police catch up with Jean Valjean later. They're like, what is this guy doing with all this nice stuff? And Jean Valjean says, the priest gave it to me. And so the police take Jean Valjean back to the priest. And the priest looks at Jean Valjean and he says, Jean Valjean, I'm very angry with you. You forgot the candlesticks. You, you see, the priest realized what Jean Valjean needed. Jean Valjean thought he, want, he needed money or goods. And the priest gave Jean Valjean what he needed, which is forgiveness. And that's what Jesus gives us as the servant. He gives us what we need, what we, our ultimate need is. And as a servant, what did Jesus do? How did He demonstrate His servantness? He washed our feet. He, let me rephrase that, I'm sorry. He washed the disciples' feet. The next question is, do you think the president would come wash our feet or your feet? I don't see it happening. But Jesus is a servant. He came to serve. Mark, just a chapter later in Mark, he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a servant come to serve our needs. He considered our desperate plight. And He came to solve it, to fix it. And this is why we're glad that Jesus rebukes Peter. I mean, sure, we want Rome out. But there's a bigger enemy at our door that we need out. The sin, death, those things. And Jesus did fix those things. He came and He solved that problem. And if you're a non-Christian here, if you don't know Jesus here, well, first of all, welcome. You're, you're most welcome. But this servant Jesus wants to serve you. He wants you to know Him so that He can solve the problems that are ultimately facing you. Because if we seek peace in this world, through worldly means, we will only know sorrow. But if we trust Christ and receive the blessings He gives, then we will know peace in this world, even in the midst of great sorrow. And so that invitation is open to you if you don't know Jesus today. And for Christians, do you realize what this means? Do you realize all that Jesus has done for you? The blessings that He has poured out? Again, we must listen to Him. Listen to His Word. What does it say about the blessings? We have forgiveness of sins. We have peace with God and man. We have a boldness to proclaim His great name. We have grace upon grace. He has given us His Holy Spirit. He has given us unity, hope, adoption into the family of God, the assurance of salvation. And the list goes on. You see, He turned 
us from enemies of the King into His beloved children. That is the privilege and honor we have as Christians. And this is the servant Jesus we need to see. You see, Jesus served what we actually need at the cost of His own life. And we need to live every day in light of that fact. Seeing Him as servant. And so Jesus is King. Jesus is servant. And if we put those together, we'll see that Jesus is the servant King. He is the servant King. And we have to see these together in the text. Because it is our only hope that the King of the universe would lay down His life as a servant. It's no good if some slave lays down his life for us. That is no good. Our only hope is if the King Himself offers up the ultimate servant activity of death. But it is also our model. It is also our model. It is our only hope. It is our model. That is, we are to model Jesus in this way. Not the literal dying for sins part, but taking our great power and our gifts and our blessings and using them to make ourselves big and strong, right? To make our name great. Is that what we're to do with them? No, to serve others. We're to take what He has given us, the blessings He has given us, to serve others. But how does a great king become a servant? How does one with great power or blessings become a servant? And the answer to that is, Love. Romans 5.8 again. But God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You see, love is what makes the great king use all of his power in order to serve the lowliest of people. In Uganda, I'm told that the kingdom of Uganda has... Um, this tradition where the king, when he visits a village, the villagers and the people will do what? They will come lay down on the ground so that the king can walk on their backs into their village. Okay? I think this tradition has gone away, but people tell me this is true. This has happened in the past. Is that how you see Jesus, to walk on your back? I hope not. Because what Jesus wants us to see is that He has laid down His life for us so that we might be able to walk in love. You see, He laid down His life for us. Why? Why did He suffer? Why does He lay down His life? Love. Love. Love for us. Love for His people. Love for His church, His bride. And so having great 
authority, great blessings, great power, and using it to serve others. What do we call this? We call this ministry. Okay? That's what all ministry is. It's taking a blessing you have from God and using it to serve others. It's what Jesus did. It's what He calls us to do. And everyone has some sort of power, some sort of influence, some sort of authority, blessings. Don't think, well, not me. You know, I'm too small or I'm too whatever. Okay? My children will demonstrate this. I have a one-year-old. His name is Ezra. Now, you watch him take a toy from one of the others. What happens? There is celebration, right? My children celebrate and they're glad. No, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, okay? But you know what? I'm almost certain Ezra knows what's about to happen because you can see it in his face. I think he wants the attention or something. I don't know. He has an influence, a a power over his siblings. Everyone has some sort of blessing, some sort of power, some sort of influence that they're called to use to serve others, not themselves. And the biblical example for this is Ephesians 5. Pastor Robert has talked about this a few weeks ago, about husbands and wives. Husbands have this headship. And the way you hear some talk about Ephesians 5, it's like the passage reads, husbands you know, are head of their wives, and they are to make sure their wives submit. That's why some people talk about it. But the passage says, actually, you're to use that headship to do what? To lay down your life for your wife. Okay? As Jesus Christ laid down His life for the church. That's what the headship is given to the husband to do. To serve his wife. And that's what pastors are called to do. Elders are called to do. That's what we're all called to do in some way. Think about it. If you're a parent here, you're called to nurture and love your children in the Lord. We just saw this baptism where Pastor Robert gave them questions about this thing. Are you going to do this? Are you going to raise them up in the Nurture and admonition of the Lord. And He asked you if you would help. And many of you raised your hands. It's not only parents and spouses, but we have co-workers, we have fellow students, we have those we see at the gym or we are passing in the coffee shop. We're called to serve. But we won't be servants until we see Jesus as the servant king. Until we know that servant love that He has given us. Until we know the blessings of grace and forgiveness that He has given to us. To you and to I. That is the power by which 
we serve. There is no other way. And so how do you seek to serve? How do you seek to serve others? Instead of walking on their backs, how do you seek to lay yourself down? To become a humble servant? There's a lady from North Korea. Let's call her Sue. Sue's husband, Sue was not a Christian. Sue's husband became a Christian. And she was, thought he was kind of weird for that. But she saw something different. And living in North Korea, where it's basically illegal to be a Christian, they found out about her husband and they sent him to prison or a work camp. And while he was away, she wrestled with life. And she said, this Jesus thing seems real to me. So she became a Christian. And her ministry grew so that the government became aware of her. And they took her away to a prison or work camp. And what did she do there? Well, she won in that situation, which is terrible. She acknowledged Jesus as king. And she had already embraced him as servant for the forgiveness of her sins. And while she was there, she, she sought and started a Bible study and evangelized and saw people come to Christ for, for those that were with her in this work camp. In the midst of great suffering, she didn't say Jesus isn't in control. She says, no, I will trust him even here. With the blessings I have, I will use it to, to serve others. May we see Jesus like that. May we see Him clearly. And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, may we fix our eyes on Him and never stop seeing Him as the King whom we listen to, as the servant who gives us what we need, the forgiveness of sins and grace upon grace, and as the servant King who calls us to take the great blessings He has given us to go out into the world to serve others. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that You loved us enough to send Your Son, Jesus, who was King of the world and could have smited us, could have done away with us. But instead, as Philippians 2 says, made Himself nothing, the form of a servant, obedient even unto death. Lord, this is a mystery and, and quite honestly hard to hear. But I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would apply Christ's blessings to our hearts so that we might serve others for Your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name, who is the servant king. Amen.